Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Daffy's Roundtable and the continuation of the Killifish Talk with Gary Elson. Without wasting any more time, we're going to jump right back in. So you mentioned you've spoken to a lot of people who have um, collected in both uh, Africa and South America. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little about that? Do you need do, do people need permits to go over there and collect? And then how hard is it to find these ponds once you're over there? Or have people already marked that they're here, you can go collect them here? Or... Um, it's You're asking a really complex question, Nate. First, should you have permits? <laughs> Absolutely, you should have permits. Um, there's been a problem with uh, Westerners going into countries and taking things and then saying, well, we can take your fish because we're much better at conserving them than you are. We have all our aquariums, you know, and of course, you know, like the average group of fish imported from nature, they live about five years and are gone. We're not better at it. Um, so, you know, a lot of countries now are realizing that their fauna is actually a thing of value. The ones that are actually putting energy into conserving the uh, habitats um, also tend to want you to have permits. They like it when people work with um, local people or through local institutions, through universities, etc. Rather than the old style thing that used to happen, which was, and it still happens, and I've been tempted to do it, where you basically go on vacation and catch a bunch of fish and bring them out. Um, How would you bring them back? Yeah, you would just put them in your luggage. So you've got that question of, is it animal smuggling? Right, is it? Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. You're yeah. certainly not endangering the fish because there might be 25,000 of them in the habitat and you're taking five, but at the same time, you you know, you are taking them from a country that has its own rules and regulations that you should respect. There was a big scandal just a couple of months ago where um, Brazil brought uh, charges against a bunch of killi keepers who were, it was a person in Brazil who was selling killifish eggs and selling them to people in, in the States and Europe on the basis of the Americans and Europeans conserving these species and setting up conservation projects, which is a really great idea, except that None of these people were connected to any kind of institution that was answerable to anyone. And there were no permits involved, and it was actually directly illegal to export these fish. Now, like any story, it's very gray because a lot of these fish were becoming extinct because the Brazilian government wouldn't protect their habitats. But at the same time, it just became a vicious circle. So a bunch of people in the States and Europe, especially in the States, got raided um, and accused of animal trafficking, which is a you know, kind of a nasty situation when you look at it. There's nothing like that. You know, there are no killifish that are on the red lists, which are the lists for fish that can be passed back and forth because... Um, it was recognized that there are a lot of killifish that only exist now in aquariums. 
And in order to make it easier for those working conservation programs to continue, um, it, it's legal to send those fish between countries, et cetera. It wouldn't be legal to go get new ones. But, you know, if I'm breeding it, I can send it to you, and it's completely legal. Where with the Brazilian fish, uh, they had declared all trade in those fish to be illegal. Um, so, so, you know. Even if, you're, even if they're bred not wild caught, you can't. Exactly, because in order to have gotten them to breed them, uh, they had to have left the country illegally. Right. It's probably not true because a lot of these fish came out of the various countries before these laws were passed. Okay. But how do you prove it? Right. right? You say, there's my fish. Actually, you know, it's descended from fish that came out in 1970. It could also be descended from fish that came out last year illegally. You know, it becomes a very gray area. So conservation is a question for catching fish um, and getting the permits, approval, et cetera, to bring fish out of a country. It's a process, but it's a process that I think people should follow. Um, I think this has to be done ethically and it has to be done respectfully. At the same time, if you decide, like if you and I go fishing in Africa, uh, we can pick a region, we can look up what else has been found in there, and then we're on our own. Um, chances are most of the access to the fish comes from uh, logging roads. Uh, there aren't that many well-maintained permanent roads in the jungle areas. So if logging company B decides to go up such and such a mountain, then you can take your car or your four-wheel drive along that road and just check every stream and see what's in it. Right. That's how people kill you fish. And if they find something new, and new species are constantly being found, uh, I think we've only scratched the surface on what we know because there's entire areas where we just can't go. Yeah. Uh, Who knows what's living in there? Even Not yeah. even just fish, any other species. Yeah, 100%. Well, that's it. There's no roads. There's no pathways. There's no, uh, in, in many cases, there are no villages. There, there's just no human presence in large, large tracts of land. In a country like Gabon, which is, uh, has a very small population for its size, um, who knows what's in the rainforest? So there's always that great curiosity to find out. That's why I was asking. I would love to go down there myself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I saw a presentation from uh, a French aquarist who went with a, a scientific expedition, and they found a couple of new species just kind of... Uh, on that expedition? Yeah, just kind of, you know, checking. They were expecting to find such and such, and all of a sudden they got something that was a little bit different. When the DNA work was done, it was something absolutely new. And now it's been described. Yep. And there's a lot of undescribed killies in the hobby. They're usually SP, which are species, something or other. There'll be a code on them. Mm. And that will tell you that this is a fish that was found that uh, nobody can really say what it is yet. And eventually... You hope that a scientist is going to look at it, classify it, give it a name. But, you know, we, we tend to spend the money on things we eat. Not the things These are really tiny, so there's not a lot of research money for them. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they're useful for eating mosquitoes. They're, they're quite useful for humans. They're useful in aging research, we've now learned. Right. But, uh, you know, it's really the things that we use that we tend to research. That's very true. That's yeah. very true. And so I know there's no money for the research, but is there any... Are, are there any conserva conservation efforts going around or like yeah, captive breeding? And Yeah, I mean, it happens on two levels. There's institutional uh, conservation where, you know, people are paid to take care of fish in a certain place. Sure. And there's also hobbyist conservation, which is, I think, a really noble idea that, and I could have some people really mad at me for saying this, it doesn't work. It, oh, it doesn't work. Well, okay, I have a fish here that's not in danger. I just really liked it. Okay. And I got it in 1992, Achille. I've bred it continuously since 1992. I've still got them here. Wow. Um, they're kind of like a personal project. Yeah. I would, uh, do you mind... Uh saying what species or the aphiosemian zigama fish from the republic of congo uh the ones that i have were collected in 1989 um when people went back to try to find out more about them the habitat had been turned into a mega farm a palm oil plantation so they were gone now, they're not extinct because the the plantation is surrounded by thick forest and they're probably in there somewhere in all those streams. But right. And there's actually a, a rumor going around among people who like the fish that they were found again but not exported. They were found by a, a local fisherman who knew what he had found but uh, didn't send them out. He just photographed them and put them back in, basically. So you know they're not extinct. Um, I know they're not extinct. They've been almost extinct in the hobby many times. Hmm. Because, you know, it's very easy to find yourself with a killie that uh, very few other people have. And I don't think that's an attraction. I think that's a danger and a responsibility. But there aren't many killie keepers. There's probably a couple of hundred in Canada, probably under a thousand in all, you know, 300 million Americans and maybe a thousand killie keepers. So if people don't breed them, they tend to disappear. There's a lot more species than there are people keeping those species. And, you know, we don't have the resources. We don't have the room. We don't have the, the ability to, to keep these things that long. And now I look at it and I figure I've got almost, uh, almost 30 years with this species. Uh, the species is probably ancient. Um, I feel like a fruit fly whose hobby is keeping elephants. Okay. I like, because, I like that. You know, my lifespan, I'm hoping it's as long as it can possibly be. But realistically, you know, once you start keeping fish, I mean, I've kept fish 50 years. I'd like to keep them for 75. be fun. But uh, 75 years is a blink. It's nothing. And that becomes a problem with the hobbyist conservation things because we don't always communicate well. You know, we have to 
worry about inbreeding with the fish, although killies seem very resistant, uh, possibly because they come from such small areas themselves that a lot of the dangerous stuff from inbreeding has already happened in nature. Uh, it's a speculation, but, you know, really, unless we're working with uh, organizations that have some resources and that have records and that can almost work like uh, species archives, I don't know how much good we can do. Because even, you know, even if a, a fish becomes extinct in nature, um, I can't control in my house, even though I'm an experienced aquarist, what uh, diseases they'll encounter from other, other fish from other regions, even on a net, on a plant that I move, whatever. So you'll so, never be able to return any eggs or any fish into their natural habitat for those reasons? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that if I've kept the killie for a number of generations, it's going to adapt to aquarium life. There's going to be natural selection going on for aquarium life as well. Even if I keep them in a really large tank and just have them breeding naturally, um, it's still aquarium life. It's still different food. It's still different uh, lighting, time cycles, etc. I don't know what I'm doing to that fish keeping it. So if it's dropped back in nature, you know, it might be kind of like that effect they've had a lot with farm salmon or farm trout where the farmed ones just don't live. Okay. They've released thousands and they die. They get killed, they get eaten, they don't know how to function. Um, you know, I, I think that really what we need, and this is always a problem of money, if we're going to conserve aquarium fish, we need to do it working with organizations that are conserving aquarium fish. And that's something that, uh, you know, where fish keepers tend to be sort of individualistic anarchist types who like to keep their fish on their own and not be told what to do and not to keep stud books and not keep accurate records. Well, if we're going to maintain stuff, we have to do that. Otherwise, that we're just keeping it, you know, we, we can maintain fish like the fish I'm keeping is a gamma. I'm keeping it for the hobby. And I'm sure it's safe in nature right now. It might not be safe 50 years from now with climate change and with deforestation, but right now it's probably okay. Um, my efforts aren't going to do anything for uh, maintaining the fish. But if you get that fish as an aquarium fish from the ones that I'm breeding, and weirdly enough, all of the uh, zygama in the hobby come from my house, um, what happened is they were imported, uh, they were spread around the hobby, people bred them. Um, I bought a pair from a guy who had, uh, who wanted to sell me an aquarium and said I had to take the fish in it. And I looked at them and I thought, well, I don't know what these things are, but I was new to Kelly's and I thought, well, it's another Kelly. I'll find out how it works. And then I read in a, a journal that the fish was extinct in the hobby. So I went online, early days of the internet, and uh, discovered that nobody had it. None of the killifish associations had it, and it appeared that brand new killifish keeper me had the only pair left in captivity. Oh, wow. The which, only pair left in captivity? Probably. Which scared the heck out of me. Of course. 
And uh, I, I decided to make it a project, and that's why I'm still keeping the fish because about every five, every five to ten years, all the people I send them to stop breeding them and they disappear again, and then I become the only guy with them again, and uh, get good prices for them. I'll tell you when it gets to that yeah, point. Uh, sure. My hobby, you know, and also I can exchange them for other species. I can, you know, after this is done, I'm going to go try to find some eggs which I'm going to be mailing to, these ones are going to France. France, wow. The ones to Spain that are waiting for, well, tomorrow's Monday. This is a Sunday interview, so I'll mail some to Spain tomorrow. And people will hatch them out, and that'll get them going again, and the whole cycle will begin again. And it would be great if every species had someone who kind of chose to become the the reservoir, in effect, like that. The pioneer for that species, yeah. You know, at least the person who's sort of the custodian. Yeah. But the problem is that, you know, let's say that uh, I, I keep that fish till I'm 90. Well, he takes it after it disappears. Right, yeah. And somebody else gets really interested, which I hope. But, uh, but I can't control it. And that's where I think a lot of our our plans for hobby conservation break down. You're a reptile guy, right? I, I, I like to consider myself a little bit of both. Okay. Do you get the same phenomenon with the reptiles, with things coming and going? or? Um, it's not as common. So, so like uh, crested geckos, for example, um, they were extinct in 1994 in the wild, but then when they found them, uh, or before that, they were thought to be extinct. But when they found them in 1994 or 1996, they brought over a bunch. And ever since then, there's been like uh, over, like there's, there's, you can find one anywhere, basically. Okay. Um, same thing with bearded dragons. Uh, they, once they, it was illegal to import them out of Australia. And then I don't know how they opened it up for only a small period of time, or maybe they were illegally imported. And okay. again, now they're bred and they're everywhere. So once it hits the hobby, it's pretty much, a staple almost i'd say well, you know that, that's happened with cherry barbs right uh really you see it in almost every pet store but you don't see it in nature the cherry uh, barb cherry barb yeah and uh the little celestial pearl danios uh yeah i've seen those a lot uh, that's another one that uh, may be extinct in nature so there's a few things like that that have these like weird zombie lives in, in hobbies with people keeping them. But uh, again, because the, the killies are harder to breed, that tends not to happen. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. And we don't value little things either. It's really interesting. Um, like, if a fish is a foot long, it's going to have a, a much bigger following than if it's an inch long. Right. Um, Partly because I think that uh, bigger animals, we can give them personalities. Right. And little fish just look like bugs. Or, or usually when you're keeping little fish, you're keeping multiple of them and you don't want to name them all Bob, Bob, Bob. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. So, well, Bob is not good. Once they're bobbing, you've made a mistake, okay? <laughs> but, uh, no, you know, we have, like, you know, we're humans. We react to animals differently. We, we like really big animals. 100%. Um, you know, I, I had a friend who um, was doing a degree in biology, 
and wanted a placement um, at a marine laboratory. So she managed to get one in New Brunswick at uh, St. Andrews. And she was all excited. She came to me and she said, um, you know, I, I'm going to get to study the whales. Finally, I'm going to study whales. That's and awesome. I said, you know, there's a lot of people studying whales. You've got yourself a stage, you know, work study thing for a summer. I'm sorry to say this, but I'm willing to bet you that you will not be studying whales. They're going to put you on something small and they're going to keep the whales for themselves. And she was like, oh, no, no, it's going to be whales. And then at the end of the summer, she gave me a gift. It's a raven tapeworm in a jar because she spent the whole summer collecting tapeworms from ravens. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's kind of how it works, you know. But you got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, but, you know, at the same time, we get attracted to the whales and the big stuff. But... Uh, the little stuff needs studying too, and uh, you know that's. But we don't relate to it. I look at that raven tapeworm, and I think, "Wow, what an incredible creature! How did that thing survive?" Yeah. You know, now it's pickled, but still, you know, it's a fairly long tapeworm for a raven. For and something I, that was inside a raven, yeah. And I horrified a lot of high school kids with it when I was still teaching in high school. You know, I kept it on my desk and I. Pickled tapeworm, and the biology teachers used to borrow it for their lessons and such. You know, it was kind of <laughs> that's awesome. But uh, you know, if you if you're into diversity, you say, "Oh, tapeworms are cool." Yeah, I don't want to keep them myself internally, but you know, they're cool. <laughs> and uh, no, definitely not. Yeah, they're not personal pets to keep. You know, not much of personality on them. No. No, no. Well, I mean, at a certain point, they're your personality if they're in yet. So, <laughs> um, no, but you know, it, it's like the small fish thing is really a problem for a lot of people. The other real killer, I think, for keeping killifish is that one species, one tank. Yeah. Yeah. People have a really hard time getting their heads around that. They think the tank is going to be boring. And I actually really like single species tanks. Me too. Because the species, if you're breeding it, you know, each generation, there's a little bit of variation in how they look. You start with these tiny fry, you grow them, and then you see how the colors develop, how the pigments deposit right. in fish and what comes out. You know, you can some fish will be kind of boring one day, and then the next day they're beautiful. Um, that yeah, you start to see the first the run red line and then the spotting comes in and then yeah, yeah stages it, it's neat to see in the stages mm -hmm. and it's neat to see how it works and then you know if you actually get into fish keeping and you keep a fish for multiple generations you know after 30 years with the zigama i'm still learning stuff they're still posing puzzles that's very interesting and uh if i had just you know, bought them, bred them once, said, woohoo, I bred that fish. I'm really good at fish breeding. Uh, and then gotten rid of them. There's a whole lot of stuff I would never have seen. Right. You know, and things I don't understand, like this fish. Um, when I lived in central Montreal, the tap water is medium hard. Okay. pH is 7.4. I used to get 35 males for every female. Interesting. Um, now where I'm living, I've got very soft tap water, pH 6.6 .6 to 
I'm getting 20 females for every male. Interesting. I've experimented with temperature, no change. I've experimented with lighting. I've experimented with all kinds of things. And it just keeps coming back to it's the water. Part that's water. There's something with the mineral content in the water. Now, I'm not a scientist. I can't do the studies that someone would need to do to determine if that's true. And it is kind of trivia at the same time because it's one species. I've had species that were closely related um, and not from far away from there, from where the fish is found. And it doesn't work by hardness, clearly. It, it's different. It doesn't happen. You, you get your... You get even ratios or, you know, there, there's all these little puzzles that happen. And then you ask yourself, well, is this what happens in nature? Yeah. Or, you know, like maybe there's something like as there's less water, when there's less rain, maybe the water gets harder. And for some reason, you know, with developmental legs, males might be more useful at that point who knows you know or, or yeah maybe vice versa when the water gets harder or you sorry you said with the harder water maybe you got more males after, maybe you get more females you know females, and yeah. again maybe there was a mutation in the ones that i got i don't know maybe you know but, it, but yeah because because well. african species right so so yeah. it should they should be living in somewhat of a harder walk water and give it Actually, getting, like, no that, that's a misunderstanding based on malawi fish Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah, East Africa, and also on Othobranchius, the savanna fish. Yeah. Uh, East Africa's got very hard water, high pH, high mineral content. Okay. West Africa in the rainforest is like the Amazon. The water is very soft. Because soft. of all the tannins getting in, all the leaf. Yeah, and in. also just the fact that uh, there just aren't minerals getting into the water. The rocks are pretty inert and... That ship sailed a long time ago, geographically, yeah, logically, and you know. But even there, there's exceptions. For example, the fish from volcanic regions like medium hard water, and the water from volcanic regions can be, you know, <clears throat> it's easy to read pH. It's not that important, but they can be a pH of seven point four, seven point six, seven point eight, and yet you travel. 20 kilometers and they're coming out of pHs in the fives. Yeah, big difference, okay. Because that water that those fish with the low pH are, are coming from isn't running down from the volcano, which is rich in minerals. Right. So, you know, it's, it's all these different things, which means that I've actually had the pleasure of learning about areas of Africa that way. Through the fish. Yeah, it's like, why is this happening with the fish? Well, what's the place like? Yeah. And then, you know, suddenly I mean, Google Earth is a lot of fun if you're really into fish that don't come from wide ranges. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you suddenly find yourself looking at the place, looking at film, reading stuff on it, uh, talking to people from there. Um, You've spoken to people from Africa that... Uh Oh, Besides yeah. collectors, like people that just yeah. well, th there are people. I mean, there there's a always in most countries there's a fish exportation trade. Okay. Uh, they don't like selling killies out of Africa. They they call them all ditch fish. Ditch fish. And they consider them all to be just one species of ditch fish, which are garbage fish that nobody wants to buy. And uh, but I've spoken to a couple of African guys who've really gotten into it. Just you know the way we get into bird watching. Oh, okay, cool. 
you know, these are young guys who are very bright and who like to just saw these things, got curious and sample to see what's where. So they go out and collect them and look for them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to do because we, you know, we have such a, a different vision of what infrastructure is. You know, it's like uh, people don't own cars. Roads are often really rough. You know, you, you're taking a, a bus that's really overloaded, sitting on the roof, whatever, hanging out the window to be able to go look at killifish. I mean, it's, it's a disincentive. Right, right. But I've spoken to guys that knew every killie in their their area and probably knew every insect, uh, every common insect and every bird. By a Latin name? Yeah. Well, yeah, often. Because what they'll do is they'll, they'll become curious and look it up. Yeah. Uh, everybody's on the internet there. Phones, eh? You know? Yeah, that's true, so, yeah. Uh, you know, so the, you know, it, it's like anywhere. There are people, there are kids who like the bugs and look at all the bugs and try to figure out what they are. Sure. And, uh, you can learn a lot from that. You know, you you can have a guy who can say to you, well, I live in this town and, uh, you know, what we have near us. is what we have near us. Look up the weather forecast for the year. You'll find out how it works. And you do, and it's like, well, that's really interesting. That's why they only breed in the fall or whatever, you know? Interesting. Have, oh, have you had that happen to you where you fish only breed in the fall or only breed at a specific time? Yeah, I have. Um, often with wild cots, they, they sort of correspond to the rainy season. And then the other thing with a lot of the fish is it's our unnatural habitat. Um, it's June. We're heading into some serious heat here. Yeah. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of fish that won't breed again until September. Because it's too hot in your fish. Too hot, yeah. I mean, just in, in the house. Uh, environment that they're in, they just shut down and they would never encounter this kind of heat. It's kind of funny. I'm sitting here in Montreal and I've it's got about heat, fish, yeah. but I think it's too hot here. But, so, right. yeah, you know, but uh, at the same time, they're from shaded rainforests, so that's not going to work. So, what I do is I concentrate on keeping them alive all summer and breed them in the fall. Do you yeah. do, do you do any, do you lower the temperature of the room or put ice blocks in the aquariums or how do you? How do you battle them over overheating? The only thing that really works is air conditioning. You know, can you imagine spending your whole life every six hours dropping ice blocks into tanks? I mean, nobody. I have been there. <laughs> okay, but you know, eventually you have to go to work or go. Oh no, hundred percent. For more than two days, it doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, no. it just doesn't work. Yeah. But you know, honestly, I don't think it would be really very responsible of me to go to, you know, heat it down or air condition the room down to like 19 degrees Celsius when it's 34 outside. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, there's questions of energy conservation and our impact on our own environment that uh, I, I tend to keep that fish room at about 24 in the summer. As long as they're doing okay, I guess. Yeah. If it goes up to 26, I'll start losing fish. Yeah. <laughs> But at okay. 24, they stay alive, and uh, but they don't breed. How low okay. does it drop in winter? Um, I, I had a previous room I had the fish in where it could get down to about 17. And I had some fish that love that, some African fish that love that. They start breeding immediately. They, they, they just, this was their ideal breeding temperature. 
Uh, where I am now, it stays at about 20. Okay. Uh, it's got the water heater and the furnace sitting in the same room, so that sort of provides ambient heat, and I add a little bit of electric heat to it as well. Um, so you don't run uh, any heaters in any of your aquariums? No. A heater with Killies is a wire going in, and a wire going in is, I'm sure they sit there and think, someday I'm going out that hole. And they look, you know. But I, I, I need to pull them out. Yeah, that's another reason why I don't keep Nothobranchias, for example, because they like warmth. So and, my my room sits around twenty two degrees. I think I should be okay. Yeah, you should I'm be okay. around. Yeah, some of the uh, some of the Nothos are going to breed better at like twenty four, twenty five, because they're full sunlight fish. Right. Uh, you know, when you're in a savanna and you've got, you know, zebras drinking from the pond and uh, there's no shade, there's nothing around, there's no shade, it's just wide open, there's not a lot of vegetation. Um, there's often a lot of algae because of mammal waste in the water when you have, you know, a herd of, herd of zebra, zebras go through and leave stuff behind, you know. Right. Uh, they're not really concerned about their drinking water quality. Or so, the fish in there. <laughs> or the fish in there, yes. I mean, you know, the temperatures are going to vary type by type. And you might find at 22 that at a certain point you might start uh, enjoying rainforest ones more. Um, I'm already starting to feel that switch happen, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> Just I, because know, pulling, out pulling out the peat moss every week is is a bit of a hassle. You know, the, the, the old guys... Um, because there's generational changes in how people keep fish. And you know, when I was in my 30s, which is when I started keeping Killies, um, there were a lot of guys in their 80s around. There was even one guy in Montreal who was in his 90s who had kept Killies since the 1920s. Um, they did things differently. And all the Notho guys used to have chicken egg incubators. Chicken egg incubators? They buy egg incubators that are... I guess in farm supply places. Yeah. And uh, that's where they would keep their Nothobranchius eggs because they had worked out that you got um, better fish if they were incubated at certain temperatures compared to if they were too high or too low. Interesting. And I mean, I saw one guy one time who had gone to the trouble of building a like a sealed wooden cabinet with a thermostat and a heat source. And he kept all of his annual eggs in there. Uh, I need to look into that. I'm way too lazy to do that. So I just stick with my, uh, my much easier to handle two weeks in the fish hatches type eggs with my aphiosemians. So is it two weeks for you? It'll depend. Um, again, species by species. Right and sometimes week by week. Uh, I recently had a species that I hatched out in uh, 15 days. Okay. Um, and then the next time I had their eggs, it took 21. I don't know, temperatures were the same, but they all seem to follow the same pattern. There's one thing that's really cool with these fish, by the way. The eggs are perfectly transparent. Right. So you can, if you have incredible eyesight, just watch the embryos develop. Um, if you get yourself a, a cheap little digital microscope, you can film the development of the eggs. 
uh, one of the teachers at the school that I work in did that, and he, um, like you could see the red corpuscles moving through the hearts of these fish when they were in the egg. And every day they would take like a, a time lapse thing. He, he had a, a class of not the most motivated grade 11s that I've ever seen. But they got into this project of every day, you know, doing a short film of what was happening in the egg. And I think one of my funniest moments teaching is I was teaching my English class and all of a sudden the door burst open and these wild characters ran in and said, they hatched, they hatched, we have fish. And then they ran out and all my other students were like, what? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> but it was kind of neat because these weren't guys you would expect to get into it. Man, they got into it by the, you know, following the whole process. And we can do that ourselves just uh, for the fun of it if you're interested in seeing things like that. That's awesome. So I, I usually uh, I check for the eyes before mm -hmm. I put them in water. So I've seen that, but I've never thought of trying to film the, uh, the process or, or no, I, you know, lapse. Yeah, I wouldn't do it with uh, Nothos because the peat darkens the egg and you can't see anything. Right, right. But if you have uh, plant spawners with clear water, I have uh, Fundilo Panchex Gardneri. The okay, yeah, Gardneri is perfect for it. Eighteen to twenty-one days, yeah. and you, you know, if you get yourself a digital microscope, you can really see a lot. They don't have to be the expensive ones because it's relatively large to begin with. Do you use um, methylene blue with your eggs? Um, I've started to a little bit now, but I use very, very little. Okay. Um, what I'm using it for is when the egg goes into the water, it uh, sucks in a whole bunch of water. Okay. Um, if it's a dead infertile egg, it sucks in the methylene blue. And you see the color of it very, very quickly so that you can remove the bad eggs before they actually, I imagine what happens, they, it probably gets more coated by the methyl and blue rather than drawing it in. Um, but it lets you see the eggs that are infertile and that way you don't get the decomposition of the infertile egg affecting the good eggs because, you know, in nature they're in thousands and thousands and thousands of liters of water and we've got them in a little jar, you know, so things later. the other thing you can do is with uh, non-annual eggs is you can stick them on wet peat and wait a day or two and if they're infertile they turn white. Oh, okay, interesting. And if they're fertile you can move them to water at that stage? You can move them to water or you can... Um, what a lot of people do, and I don't do this, so I've got no real expertise, but what they'll do is they'll collect eggs over a week, put them all on peat, and put them away for like two weeks. And what will happen is the development of the eggs will slow. And then when they get them going, they'll all hatch at once. At the same time, so they're not fry at different age and different sizes. Yeah, because one of the problems that you have is I find you've got about five days. Um, most of the time, the parent fish, unless you have them in tiny, tiny tanks, don't eat their fry. Okay. But the fry eat their brothers and sisters. Yeah, I've, I've seen, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if you're five days older and all of a sudden your little brother hatches, you eat them. You take them, yeah. 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 And and how, how young, so you mentioned earlier that like at three months, usually Nothos will start to, which by the way, my, my fry are over three months and they haven't started. There's no usual. 
Sir? Uh, there's no usual. There's All right, okay. species that is breeding at seven weeks. There's others that breed at three or four months. Oh, okay. So it's okay. Okay. Sorry. Okay. They're all on different timelines. So even with the Aphiosimians, it would be the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I've got um, I've got species that will breed at say six, seven months, and I have one here that gave me its first fertile eggs at fourteen months. Wow. Okay. Based on <clears throat> what I've learned about the natural history, that's not an aquarium phenomenon. They're just very slow to mature and to breed. Okay. Must live in safer water to be able to count on living that long. You know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, less predators around darker or something. All right. In Canada, the banded killifish is listed as a species at risk of extinction. Um, in some regions. In some regions. All right. Do you know if, if anything's being done? I know you mentioned uh, earlier like smaller fish, so less budget as compared to the whales. But is anything being done for the um, banded killifish here in Canada? Not that I know of. Um, in Ontario, they've banned bait fish. Okay. And that's partly because bait fish were um, bait fish were transferring between lakes, and you were getting natural ecosystems disturbed. I mean, people would buy, I don't know, twenty-four banded killifish and only use eight and dump the rest in the lake where they'd never been before, okay. and it was upsetting natural ecosystems. Uh, so there's controls like you, you aren't permitted to uh, keep them in aquariums in Ontario or Quebec, which is kind of a strange ruling because um, they are incredibly common still. Right. Um, there, there are regional sort of environmental changes that have made them almost extinct in certain areas. Okay. Um, but for example. Uh, I saw some beautiful, relatively, beautiful. in New Brunswick, and I checked with uh, their fish and wildlife, and it's no protection whatsoever. Okay. Do what you want with them, collect 100, feed them to your dog, it doesn't matter. And nobody cares. Okay, that makes sense. It depends on, like, if they're really common in one place, uncommon in another. We're, you know, we're really good at lecturing other countries about their protection of the fauna, but we're not very good. Okay. You know, we're, we're very holier than thou when it comes to to questions <laughs> like that, and then we're making our own fish extinct at incredible rates, except we have fewer. In our, you know, in our, um, in our climate, in our long-term climate, it doesn't push fast evolution. Yeah, for fish specifically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Plus the fact that the glaciers depopulated huge expanses in North America. So the species that moved back in as the glaciers retreated haven't had a whole lot of time to speciate. So right. So you expect to see more in in, in another couple of hundred years. I I I think I might miss that. Unfortunately. <laughs> no, well, I mean, you expect no, I, there will I, be. I think, yeah, I think there's a whole process underway here. That's very awesome. Well, Gary, thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. Uh, that was a lot of crazy information that I had no idea before, even though I've been keeping Achilles for over a year now. So I have definitely have a lot more to look into. You are super active on the uh, Canadian Society Canadian of Exchange, which is a, a band group, which is um, trying to get around the Facebook ban on uh, trading, selling live animals, because if we don't exchange these species, we lose them. They go right. extinct, at least in the hobby. 
Right. Uh, for killifish, it's incredibly important to uh, keep exchanging them, keep them moving from tank to tank, keep them alive with more than one person keeping them. We can't buy them in stores. Definitely. And the Facebook ban has been a real killer for that. So the banned group was the Canadian Killifish Exchange as an attempt to make killies available and to get people into keeping killies within Canada. So. For sure. And I'll link the group in the show notes so everyone who's listening can find it. And hopefully you all come join us on that uh, band group because as as Gary mentioned, it's it's awesome and like there's a lot of resources, a lot of breeders on there. So There's also the Southern Ontario Killifish Society on Facebook. Awesome. Which is sort of the Canadian clearinghouse for killie discussion. Cool. Yeah, I will link that as well. Awesome. I will link all those. And uh, hopefully we will talk soon. Thank you very much for coming on. All right. Thank you. I'll leave all the links to everything we talked about in the show notes. Thank you all for tuning in and we'll see you next week.